Well, well, welcome back to Rebellion Dogs Radio, a contemporary look at addiction and recovery, now with less dogma and more bite. This is episode 48. At the time of recording, it is October 2019. September was Recovery Capital Conference Month in Canada. To my NADAC friends, that's the American Association of Addiction Treatment Professionals, they met in Orlando while Recovery Capital Conference is going across We the North land. Anyway, NADAC folks, sorry I couldn't make it. I've been lurking. I've been looking at some of your presentation notes and social media. Looks like it was another great uh, NADAC annual conference. Wish I could have been there. Maybe next year. Now, last year at the Recovery Capital Conference in Canada, we talked to Giuseppe Ganchi of Last Door Recovery Society about this conference. The feeling among organizers was that we get together and we talk about addiction a lot. How about a conference to explore, study, and brainstorm about recovery? That's what the Recovery Capital Conference brand is about. Dr. Ray Baker over here will join us for a recap of his Vancouver, Calgary, Regina, Halifax, and Toronto stops on the tour. Jessica Cooksey and he were on the program at each and every one of these stops. But first, step one. <laughs> Let's talk about the state of addiction, or more broadly, substance use today. Here's some findings from the latest, which is the 2018 Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration, SAMHSA, study for drug use and health. Here's some big numbers for context. This is substance use, including recreational users, as well as addiction. 60% of people surveyed use alcohol, tobacco, and prescription or street drugs. So, there is 109 million people who don't use anything or didn't use anything in the last month. 109 million sober people. So much for excuse number one. Everyone's doing it, man. So of the 165 million people who do use mind and mood-altering substances, alcohol is number one. Way to go, Team Alcohol. Almost 140 million Americans drink. 60 million Americans smoke tobacco. And 28 million smoke weed. 3 million misuse pain relief medication. And another 1.7 million misuse prescribed stimulants. 2 million do cocaine, and then the numbers go down for methamphetamines, hallucinogens, and heroin at the bottom with 354,000 Americans who used heroin in the last month. So the news peg is always about opioids and, and, and quite a bit about tobacco, but booze is number one. Uh, let's get into some areas of interest where alcohol is concerned. And these numbers may play out for other substances too. So, imagine 140 million drinkers. 
67 million of those are binge drinkers. That's 48%. 16.6 million are heavy alcohol users. So the 140 million drinkers, 16.6 million are heavy alcohol users. That's 25% of any of the binge drinkers and 11.8% of all users, all drinkers. So real alcoholics would be in the heavy alcohol use category. Here's some noteworthy findings. The percentage of people with alcohol use disorder in the past year has declined, and it has declined steadily since 2002. That's good. 18 to 25-year-olds, they're the most likely age group to have an alcohol use disorder. People aged 12 and older who have had a substance use disorder in the past year, 15 million Americans have an alcohol use disorder, 8 million with illicit drugs, 4 million marijuana, that's on the rise, 1.7 million with uh, pain relief misuse. So half of them, 15 million, are alcohol users. You add up all of the substance use disorders in 2018, you've got 20 million Americans. Double winners are people with alcohol and another illicit drug, 2.7 million people. So my point here before we talk about recovery is to identify the clear and present need for people who may be trying to transition from substance use disorder to recovery. And recovery is working. Psychiatry.org reported that we're going to meetings and they're taking notes on our meeting attendance and the outcomes. They reported that a new meta-analysis examines 20 randomized control studies of spiritual or religious-based programs for substance use problems. Previous research has identified spirituality and religion as having important roles as a protective factor against substance use and or for people in recovery from substance use disorder. Spiritual religious based interventions such as Alcoholics Anonymous and Narcotics Anonymous are commonly part of treatment for substance use problems. This study is the first systemic review of meta-analysis looking at the efficacy of spiritual religious-based interventions for substance use problems. Now this is psychiatrists talking to psychiatrists. The report recognizes AA and NA as religious. That might not be your experience or my experience, especially if you or I mainly go to secular 12-step meetings. But as uh, Joe Nowinski reports, He's the author of If You Work It, It Works, The Science Behind 12-Step Recovery. Studies show that while atheists and agnostics are less likely to attend 12-step meetings, those of us who do respond and do just as well as any of the more religious members. The psychiatry.org report from this fall goes on to say that the researchers looked at two types of outcomes, substance use reduction, abstinence, and also improvements in psychosocial spiritual outcomes, such as spiritual coping, depression, anxiety, employment, and relationships. 
Most of the studies in the meta-analysis involved 12-step facilitation programs. These programs involved a series of counseling sessions with a professional counselor based on principles of 12-step, such as AA or NA. Based on their analysis of the program, the research authors conclude that spiritual religious-based programs were more effective at reducing or eliminating substance use and equally as effective as other programs on broader measures of wellness and function. Now, so what they're saying is the 12-step model is effective and it works, according to their data. Separate studies, they compare 12-step approach to SMART, Women for Recovery, Life Ring, and they find that any group of drunks, by any name, gleans positive outcome results. In just a sec, we're going to chat with Dr. Ray Baker, addiction medicine doctor and soon-to-be author. Ray, doing most of the work, and me, coaching and publishing, are working on a book together that will be new for 2020 about recovery capital. Along with Jessica Cooksey, he was speaking to people about what is recovery capital and what is recovery-oriented systems of care. He did this all across Canada. This upcoming interview was from their Toronto stop. I joined Ray and the whole gang in New Westminster, BC. That's Vancouver, if uh, in the lower mainland of British Columbia, if you're not familiar with that region, for the 2019 kickoff, which was a two-day event early in September. A highlight was the presentation of recent research done by David Best, professor at Sheffield Hallam University, and he also works at the Australian National University. Best has authored nearly 200 peer-reviewed academic papers and another 70 technical reports. Any time now, his new book is coming out, Pathways to Desistance and Recovery, The Social Contagion of Hope. I can't wait. David Best argues, based largely on his findings, that recovery includes an identity change. This change in identity is intrinsically social. He describes how relationship negatively or positively affect the possibility of positive outcomes. Research shows that for people coming out of rehab and or detox, if they know just one person in long-term recovery, this one fact alone significantly improves their outcome rates. Imagine you come out of rehab, you don't know anyone but your friends at the crack house. Recovery is going to be not impossible, but more difficult than if someone you know at work is in recovery, or someone in your band, or someone in your family. So David Best aims to advance a social identity model as a mechanism for understanding the journey to recovery or desistance, and the centrality or reintegration into communities for a coherent model and public policy around addiction recovery, to quote him directly. Now, I'll get these exact numbers wrong, and I do undertake to arrange an interview with this guy, David Best, if you're listening. 
call. Have your people call my people. But I should be in the ballpark, I will say confidently. A study was done, UK, US, and Australia, to the best of my recollection. An extensive longitudinal study that identifies what percentage of people with substance use disorder who reach out for help, how many of them will be living in recovery five years later, or was it attaining five years of continuous recovery? I don't remember, but reaching this five-year mark in the study. That's why I need the book. <laughs> but the percentage that met this standard, take a wild guess, it was 57%, 57 or 58%, as I recall. So if you have a problem with alcohol or other drugs and you want help, chances are it's going to work. You have a better than 50-50 chance that you will recover from addiction. Then the researchers of the study went to or went back to the treatment professionals who helped facilitate their findings, and the people who treat us, they were asked, what percentage of people do you think transition to being in recovery five years from now? So frontline workers were asked what percentage they thought. On the average, they thought 7%. It's 57. They thought it was 7%. That's pretty pessimistic. Professionals have a negative bias when they start their day at the detoxes and treatment centers each day. Now, in part, it's completely forgivable. They deal with the chronic uh, recidivism sufferers, uh, the retreads that keep cycling through the system. Addiction counselors don't work with people who quickly transform to high scores of recovery capital, people who don't need ongoing or recurring care. Best sees optimal care as being three stages, measure, plan, and engage. Measure, plan, engage. His presentation was epic, and I will, as I said, endeavor to get David Best on the show. Call me. But we have Dr. Ray Baker here right now from beautiful downtown Toronto, He's going to give us a city-by-city city comparison of the problems each area is facing and the audiences that attended Recovery Capital Conference. We'll talk a bit about his presentation, our upcoming book, and where to search the web right now if you're looking for resources, and how to guard against misinformation. So, here we go. Hi, this is Dr. Ray Baker. We are listening to Rebellion Dogs Radio. So the Recovery Capital Conference started off with an idea of a few people, and there was one, and then there's two, and now how many stops are there uh, in 2019? Okay, three years ago we started in New Westminster, and last year we had New Westminster in Toronto, and this year we were New West, Calgary, Winnipeg, Regina, Halifax, and Toronto. I find regional differences in recovery communities. Yes. You know, uh, mm -hmm. there's a rural difference and an urban difference and, you know, like state to state or province to province, uh, country to country. Um, what were your sort of uh, takes on the different types of crowds? Didn't divide so much into urban and rural, but what it seemed to be was uh, a combination of the state of the epidemic 
and drug and the drug of no no choice mm -hmm. you know whether it was methamphetamine or opioids currently mm -hmm. and we know that that changes from time to time or region to region mm -hmm. but the other thing is the state of funding you know this is a field that is fragmented and and probably more polarized than I've ever seen it and more tribal than I've ever seen it. You, and you've been at this for how long? I've been doing this for as long as you have, Joe. <laughs> I, I, I certified in 1986, but I first volunteered in a, in a crystal meth during the, the during the, uh, what were they, we called them speed freaks in the, in the 60s. Mm -hmm, and then, mm -hmm. But I certified in addiction medicine in 1986 as one yeah. of the first Canadian docs. And so I've seen a lot of, both a lot of epidemics come and go, but I've also seen a lot of different ideologies and, and, and attitudes towards addiction, towards addicts, mm -hmm. you know, whether there's a stigma or not. And then I've seen uh, polarizing factions come along as the different people sort of claim this. At first it was a little easier because you mm -hmm. remember nobody really wanted to take addiction on mm -hmm. and so it was grassroots. Yeah, It was alcoholics helping alcoholics and we didn't publish, we didn't do our science and now we're paying for that mm -hmm. because if you were around in the early 80s uh, everything was recovery, and the conferences were exciting. But since then, it's become addiction medicine, it's become addiction psychiatry, mm -hmm. it's become public health, keeping people alive, and then with a different approach with people in harm reduction, fighting people who are in various other abstinence-based or recovery-oriented programs. And then there's agencies with only so many dollars to split. Yeah. And mental health... Uh, with their training and their way of looking at things and addiction with their training and way of looking at things, seeing each other as enemies, but in a way they really are because they're fighting over the same dollars mm -hmm. and, and it's not being coordinated well and that's part of the problem. Mm -hmm. So with all of these warring factions, there's a lot of confusion. Unfortunately, I think the people with addiction are suffering the most yeah. because there are too many gaps in this, yeah. and it isn't a system of care. Yeah. The irony is that if we just got in the same room and started talking, mm -hmm. we've got enough money, we've got enough resources, we've got enough tools. Mm -hmm. If we could just cooperate, we could create an amazing system in Canada. Amazing. Yeah, if, if everyone got together and you put a map, right, like uh, uh, first uh, use of drugs, uh, final, uh, you know, 10 years of long-term recovery, right? right, and the journey in between, and where, where does every agency, where's their expertise? You know what's even bigger than that is the people who end up face-to-face -face with people with addictions, and I'm one of those, yeah. uh, are, are, are enforcement, they're mm -hmm. teachers, yeah. mm -hmm. there are um, um, healthcare system, emergency department, yeah. corrections is just full of people with mm -hmm. addictions. Uh, uh, even uh, employee assistance EAPs, uh, people. And, yeah. and they're all potential areas of contact and intervention, but they all have, a, a, they all have some skin in this. Yeah. Because uh, tomorrow I talk and I was thinking how to introduce this complex 
subject and not be overwhelmed and overwhelming mm-hmm. with the, the, the magnitude of the problem. Yeah. But it reminds me of the old story, and I'm sure you've heard it, of, of the person who dies and goes to heaven, and mm-hmm. he or she's being shown around. They're on their way to, have, to the heaven room, mm-hmm. but the, the, the guide says, would you like to look at hell? And, and the, the new arrival says, yeah, I'd love to look in there. So he looked in there, and what it was was all these emaciated, sunken, unhappy people sitting around a, ta- a table just full of, of, of luscious, beautiful food, but they all have a spoon that's like five feet long, and none of them can make it work for them. They can't eat. And so they're starving the to death. Can't Spoons reach their mouth. can't reach their mouth. It's too long. And, and of course, the, the heaven is the same room and the same food on the table and the same long sp- spoons. The only difference is they figured out how to help each other, how yeah, to work feed together and feed yeah. each other. And that's what we have to do. Yeah. Because it, Portugal, you know, and in my tour across Canada, Nuno Capaz, uh, the, the, who's the head of the... I forget the name of the, the organization. It's a, it's a government organization that triages and assesses people that are brought in by police mm-hmm. b- because they're breaking a drug law. Yeah. You know, they've got decriminalization, but it's not legalization. Mm-hmm. And the police play a really crucial role. They're a player here. Mm-hmm. And they know the players on the street. Yeah. And, and so they get people engaged, yeah. and then people are given... a. a an option, and then, but because they set this system up by putting everybody in the same room and talking, mm-hmm. all of the players, all yeah. of the agencies, all of the funders, all the organizations, and then they get triaged off, and of course they solve their problem. Mm-hmm. That's what Switzerland did in, in yeah. places that have done it. So they actually use the pillars, they actually use the enforcement and have the prevention yeah. and have the treatment, and then. Uh, and the harm reduction, a- absolutely essential mm-hmm. harm reduction, but it has to be part of a system. It, none yeah. of us can stand alone. We yeah. shouldn't, shouldn't be yeah. doing standalone medication treatment. We shouldn't be doing standalone harm reduction. It should feed in as we do with other chronic illnesses. Mm-hmm. We, we need to bring it to the community, make it recovery management rather than uh, thinking that uh, one shot, one modality, one type of treatment should fix them, and if they don't, we blame the patient. You know, another uh, old expression comes to mind, it takes a community to raise a child. Takes a community, oh yeah, and and on this tour across Canada, more and more it's becoming clear, two things are becoming clear about the community. Our job in helping people with addictions, our job is to help create a community of recovery, because that's what heals them. That, yeah. The, the, the village to hook them up assertively get them hooked up to the community but do whatever we can mm-hmm. to build that community yeah. to sustain and the neat thing about it is it's a very from a cynical point of view it's very inexpensive because then so much of the work of healing is done by volunteers and fellow yeah. by family members and so the system is so much more replicable, it's so mm-hmm. much, it spreads, it's contagious. Yeah. But here's the, the dark side of this. As I've been in communities where they've had only harm reduction, and don't hear this as being anti-harm reduction, I'm mm-hmm. not. Harm reduction, keeping people alive and, and engaging them in care and then moving them on when they're ready. Mm-hmm. Uh, recovery-oriented harm reduction is essential and it's life-saving. But if all you've got is 
harm reduction that doesn't lead to anything. What mm -hmm. you do is you build a community of a disease of, a disease, of, of addiction, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and that gets bigger too. So th right. they're both contagious. Right, yeah, yeah. It, either, either of those communities can seem like, well, this is what's normal. Yeah. To go back to your original question mm -hmm. about what the audience is, what the people that I've met with in the communities when we talk mm -hmm. about addiction and recovery, it has been about funding, about how severe the drug problem is seen to be, and about how how helpless and hopeless the workers in the field feel. Mm -hmm. And and so it's, uh, it's really sad because as I look around and as I talk to people at these conferences and hear what they're doing, but mm -hmm. they don't talk to each other, yeah. they've got everything they need. Yeah. We have what we need. Yeah. You know, we don't need for someone to come along and rescue us. What we really do, we do need the grassroots to come forward yeah. because the people with the expertise are the people in recovery, mm -hmm. and we know there's over two million of us in Canada. Yeah. But then we need... And what, 25 million in the United States? 25 million, yeah, mm -hmm. people in recovery. But because of stigma, we generally hide out. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But, but we are, then we also need to lobby and advocate and get government involved mm -hmm. so that they can put, a, put strategic funding in place mm -hmm. and coordination and then we've got everything we need. We just have to establish training programs yeah. for the health professionals, for the counselors, for the outreach harm reduction workers, so that they're all in the same tent working together, learning the same information mm -hmm. about, about addiction and mental illness. What really inspires me is uh, there is so much more known about recovery and the recovery journey, and, and even some yes. hints about what what's effective and what works. Yes. Uh, last year here in Toronto, John Kelly from Harvard. Excellent. Uh, in New West, we both sat through a beautiful presentation by David. David Best. Yeah, he's got a new book coming out soon. Yeah. That I, I can't wait to... Yeah, recovery science on. is booming. Uh, I don't have to tell you, William White did this uh, montage of uh, 412 studies that have been done like since the year 2000, right? Yes. And people say AA isn't scientific or, you know, treatment, yeah, that's yeah. not scientific. I, I mean, they're relying on very old news. You, you right. even mentioned in your talk. Oh, the, 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 the evidence on mutual support groups in general, but because 12-step programs are the granddaddy, they're the big ones, mm -hmm. the most of the research since 2006 have, has been on them. and. The evidence, you can no longer try to deny it. It's pretty powerful. It's yeah. one of the strongest predictor of long-term sustained recovery. Yeah, there were a couple studies recently that I just heard in the William White papers. One was that uh, in community care, it was like 54% uh, recovery rate. In yeah. sort of clinical care, it was a little lower. It would be. over 50 because yeah. they're the most severe cases. Absolutely. There's self-selection. Yeah, the people who right. end up in treatment centers and clinic, under clinical care, yeah. they weren't the, the natural recovery folks. And then David Best, <coughs> uh, he did a study that was international, and it had a higher number of nearly 60% of anyone who starts a recovery journey Six out of ten are likely to get to five years of uh, recovery. And that would be similar to our Canadian and the International Right Life and Recovery surveys. Because mm -hmm. what we found was 
over 50 percent made it without a single relapse yeah and then it's like a, a bell-shaped curve mm -hmm. after that there's only a small fragment that mm -hmm. if they try if they keep trying who don't make it most people with addictions have a very good prognosis better than most of the other chronic diseases i for treat sure, right? yeah. yeah yeah good luck with uh you know curing cancer for, oh, oh yeah you know, there's or, or heart disease yeah and yeah. and the interesting thing is and this is where i get really excited i've been i've been studying pretty much nothing but recovery medicine recovery science for the mm -hmm. last three years mm -hmm. partly because of the book that i'm writing with some help from you yeah uh, but but also because it's my passion and as i retired from clinical practice i it's my organizing principle i just i'm just very sort of addicted to it <laughs> but what what's really exciting is you know i'm also a an athlete and a runner and I'm, I go to the sports medicine conferences and the lifestyle medicine conferences yeah. and what we have going on is one of the most rapidly growing segments of medicine in North America right mm -hmm. now is lifestyle medicine mm -hmm. and they're getting their evidence based so they've got yeah. evidence showing that most chronic diseases mm -hmm. including heart disease type 2 diabetes obesity, many forms of cancer, hypertension, mm -hmm. can be prevented, can be arrested, and can even be reversed yes. using lifestyle yeah. behavioral change. But then when you, you dive into what does that look like mm -hmm. and compare it to a person who's in recovery from addiction, guess what? It's the same stuff. Yeah. Once you get once you get through the detoxification, mm -hmm. stabilize the brain, mm -hmm. get off the drugs, get the refusal skills in place, change your community to one of more of support of recovery mm -hmm. than support of addiction. It, from then on, it's lifestyle medicine, and it's those same things that pr prevent progression of the disease and reverse it. So it's that's for me as a physician is really exciting. So, so they're finding that uh, just use the example of someone who. Uh, is uh, diagnosed with heart problems because of uh, a fatty diet and right. a lethargic. Right, no of, exercise, yeah. fatty diet, high carbo, high refined carbohydrates yeah. do it yeah. too. Yeah, sugar, salt, fat. Yeah. And so they go to a plant-based diet, they start exercising, they're, they're still way better off if they find a community of peers. Like Absolutely. That, right? Con connection. Yeah. So, so either one of those will improve, will actually slow the disease down or even arrest mm -hmm. it. But when you do all those things, connect to a community, yeah. sort of like AA, but yeah, for, them, yeah. for normies, they don't get to go to AA, yeah. uh, uh, but connect. Yeah. When they get a regular exercise program, and that, that you don't have to be a marathoner to do mm -hmm. that. It's mm -hmm. like, like you know, half an hour a, a day of yeah. aerobic exercise does amazing things. Mm -hmm. Change to a, a mostly plant-based and mostly non processed foods, non-refined carbohydrates, but it's not hard to do and you don't have to mm -hmm. be a purist. And the third, the fourth thing mm -hmm. is uh, a, a form of stress reduction like using mindfulness. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So meditation and mindfulness, when they put those four things together, they not only stop these diseases, they actually can show you mm -hmm. that heart disease, those plaques, yeah. the atheromatous plaques yeah. Yeah. of cholesterol that are just yeah. waiting to burst and plug and cause mm -hmm. a heart attack. They get smaller, they reverse. Yeah. So that's exciting stuff. And and that's where like uh, you know like twelve step communities or recovery communities in general they vary greatly. Some of them enable 
you know, uh, bad eating and smoking, and smoking yeah, yeah. And, you know, yeah. other sort of extreme activities. Right. Uh, and others are, you know, like, let's go mountain climbing, let's go, yeah. uh, you know, let's go to the gym, right? Let's, let's, let's cycle a hundred kilometers. And Somebody asked me a dumb question today, and it, it, I find it irritating that you probably get asked the same thing. And, and is it, and they, they asked, are you abstinence-based or, or, and then they'll add something as, yeah. as a, as a, Contrary, are you abstinence-based or medication-assisted? Are you abstinence-based or right. harm reduction? Yeah. And that is not the right answer because abstinence isn't even the measure of recovery. That I mean, it mm-hmm. it may for for many people mm-hmm. be an essential component, but yeah. by itself, it's not worth very much. Yeah, it's almost like uh, if uh, most people come to addiction as self-diagnosing themselves with addiction. They, yeah, they really need to self uh, sort of self-describe or narrate their recovery, yeah. right? For some people, it's going to be medically-assisted recovery. For some people, it's going to be no sugar, no fat, no cigarettes. But, uh, but we have to go further than that because if, if, if you're working in this field and I'm working in this field and we're fighting over funding, mm-hmm. the funding agency is going to say, Joe or Ray, you got to show me that it works. And here's the measures that it works. So right. we have to have a common set of measures of recovery. Right. Mm-hmm. And abstinence by itself, I mean, we all know about dry drunks, and it's yeah, not a yeah. nice place to mm-hmm. be. They're abstinent, but boy, mm-hmm. they're not healthy. Mm-hmm. So, the, and, and so although there isn't a perfect con- consensus, there's growing consensus, mm-hmm. World Health Organization, SAMHSA, American Society of Addiction Medicine, it all started out at the Betty Ford Institute. But mm-hmm. out of... And, and uh, Leanne uh, Cascudis oh, yeah. came up with Great about studies. 30 components, but it comes yeah. down to four, mm-hmm. four essential components. Mm-hmm. And one is pursuit of, of cessation of the addictive behavior. That doesn't mean, I didn't use the abstinence word there. It, yeah. was, it was avoiding the criteria for addiction, stopping mm-hmm. the loss of control, the negative consequences mm-hmm. of compulsive use. So pursuit of that. I yeah. just have to be heading in that direction. Yeah. Then, then the three other components is improved global health. If what you're doing mm-hmm. to treat the, the patient or mm-hmm. the client is effective, then it should show in terms of better mental health, better physical health, mm-hmm. fewer uses of the emergency department. Mm-hmm. Uh, the next one is improved function. Show me how this person's life, quality of life, but also their interactions, their social function, vocational function, schooling function, what it is they do in life, in the world, works better. And the final one is mm-hmm. increased pro-social behavior. They're better citizens. They're more, yeah. And it's, it's true. When our life and recovery surveys show that people who are in recovery from addiction are more likely to give. Mm-hmm. They're more likely to volunteer. They're more likely to to help other people, to donate, and to to be a good community member, mm-hmm. which is and one more, of the things more than non-alcoholics. Absolutely. Non-alcoholics, yeah. So it's it's it, it's a really exciting field where my patients don't just stop the progression of their disease; they get weller than they've ever been, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. which is I love that. Yeah. Now you talked a little bit about funding, and you talked about some of the themes of like methadone or yeah. uh, opioids. 
Is it true that in all of these jurisdictions that this conference has held, uh, alcohol-related illness and death is still higher than any of these sort than of... Than the opioid-related death? Yeah. It is. It's, and it's not quite as high as tobacco-related deaths. Right, right, yeah. So addiction is way, way up there, and the opioid epidemic is, is, is awful, mm-hmm. and it's a catastrophe. It's a mm-hmm. terrible thing. But it's always, the numbers have always been outrageous. It's, if, if any other disease was killing Canadians the way mm-hmm. addiction has been killing Canadians for, for decades and decades, yeah. we, we, we wouldn't stand for it. But, but, but we conceal the problem. And we, is it because that's where the funding is, or that's what the, the focus is, it, it, opioids, uh, meth, uh, you know? Um, I think vaping now it's yeah. <laughs> the next step. I, I think it's dramatic for a whole bunch of reasons. Be, you know, it's it's taking a lot of young, otherwise healthy people mm-hmm. in their homes. It's not in the on the streets. Mm-hmm. You know, many many people from middle class homes are dying. Mm-hmm. But the other thing is, there are vested interests who who have a lot at stake here, mm-hmm. who have an interest in in opioid treatment. Mm-hmm. It's stealing the thunder and unfortunately sucking the air out of the room mm-hmm. and taking funding and attention away from the treatment of the other addictions, but also away from recovery. And what we're trying mm-hmm. to do by going across Canada with the conference is mm-hmm. saying, listen, this isn't us against you. We absolutely need harm reduction. We, yeah. we need medication-assisted treatment and medication-assisted recovery. And There'll always be an important role for you, but you need us too because we all care for the same people mm-hmm. and we want them to get well. Yeah. So let's get in the same tent and work together. Yeah. Now, what would you say for people who just wanted to be better informed, like lay people who don't have access necessarily to peer to peer journals? So, where's the best sort of resources for? information on what's going on in the science of... Well, if you want to, to if, if you like reading, <laughs> you mentioned Bill White, yeah. and if you go online and just type in William White papers, mm-hmm. William White has been our troubadour. He's, he's been a brilliant historian, mm-hmm. and, and he's got papers on everything, and if that whets your appetite and you're really interested, buy his book, Slaying the Dragon. It's a massive book. It's only $25. They'll mm-hmm. ship it to you. And it's a history. And it's very American-centered, mm-hmm. but it's the history of, of addiction, of alcoholism, but also mm-hmm. opium and the history of addiction, the history of treatment, mm-hmm. the history of mutual support groups, and then the rise of the recovery grassroots movement. Mm-hmm. And finally, it's where it gets really exciting, and the reason that I'm on this tour, he documents recovery-oriented system of care, which, right. is, which is this growing new body of, of clinical skills and knowledge and new attitudes uh, to convert our system into recovery-oriented care mm-hmm. for both mental health and addiction. Mm-hmm. Very exciting stuff. Yeah. So Bill White would be my, the go-to guy that I think. Can you think of an, another easy place to learn about yeah, it? Yeah, I mean, every once in a while there's something on PubMed. The, unfortunately, there's a lot of misinformation. Yeah, that, there's and that. Yeah. There's a lot of pharma. Remember, pharma isn't t- totally without guilt here. You mm-hmm. know, it was mm-hmm. Purdue that went across Canada and the United States Mm-hmm. convincing everybody, including my medical colleagues, 
that uh, oxycodone wasn't particularly addictive. Yeah. And they helped create this crisis. And mm -hmm. it's quite ironic right now that the pharmaceutical industry is dominating the training of addiction, saying, mm -hmm. prescribe your way out of this. Yeah, yeah. And I'm not saying that's a bad thing, but it's any treatment that's standalone, whether it's a prescription medication or if it's mm -hmm. harm reduction or if it's even a little treatment center, mm -hmm. if it's standalone and they think they got the answer, they're wrong. Yeah. They need to tie into a recovery-oriented community. It takes a, a village. I, I've been researching and talking about the excitement of recovery-oriented system of care mm -hmm. and watching the transformation occur in places like Connecticut and mm -hmm. Philadelphia and Chicago and Oregon and where they've implemented a combination of grassroots with government support and funding mm -hmm. to create recovery-oriented communities. And they're all slightly different from each other. And you read Bill White and John Kelly's documentation of this process and mm -hmm. of, of great leaders in the field, like, like one of the speakers here tomorrow is, is one of the people who implemented the, the Connecticut model and got the systems, got the agencies to work together wow. and overcome their resistance because yeah. people don't like to change. But if you follow the history, here's what, it's a little scary, you know what? It starts to go quiet after 2009, 2010. Mm -hmm. And so now for the last seven years, other than John Kelly's independent research studies mm -hmm. that he's documenting on recovery, we don't hear much about community conversions to recovery-oriented systems mm -hmm. of care. So I'm, I'm thinking, what happened? Mm -hmm. You know what happened? What happened was the opioid epidemic. Pharma came in, pharma does the research and, and does the medical education. Mm -hmm. we've, we've started moving all of our approach to this short-term stopgap measure, mm -hmm. stop the, the hemorrhage, mm -hmm. and I haven't been seeing anything new, except in Canada with mm -hmm. our Recovery Capital Conference. But you know, in Canada, we we've gone backwards. We ha we had mm -hmm. in 2015 we had a recovery summit. Yeah. Uh, Rona Ambrose hosted it, brought it together. Mm -hmm. We had a life and recovery survey. We were building momentum, mm -hmm. and then since the, the current government got in, the move went towards harm reduction and cannabis legalization, mm -hmm. yeah. and we haven't had any recovery initiatives. So, yeah. so I'm, a, I'm quite nervous ab about where we are. I hope we don't lose the momentum that we had mm -hmm. going a few years ago, and I'm hoping we can spark it up again in Canada. Yeah. Now, we could talk forever, but oh, you've got I love a talking presentation to you. <laughs> tomorrow, and you've got some writing to do. We I do. <laughs> Once this is over, i got to get back to writing. Yeah. yeah. That, uh, that'll be uh, good for you and it'll be good for everybody. Yeah, yeah. Awesome. I hope you enjoyed it. It reminds me how much work we still have to do. And we'll do it. Uh, up next on our next episode uh, will be uh, William Schauberg. He's written The Writing of the Big Book, The Birth of Alcoholics Anonymous. It was 11 years of research about early AA from 1937 when the book was, the idea for a book was floated until April 1939 when it was printed. There will be some folklore challenging and myth busting 
as Bill Schauberg goes through with us uh, his process for testing all of those stories we've heard, some of us have even told, and sometimes we heard them from the sources. But what happens is these stories are measured against contemporary data, letters in the archives, Lois's diary, etc. And it's uh, a scholarly look, something that hasn't been done since Ernie Kurtz did Not God, A History of Alcoholics Anonymous, and I think that was 1979. So this is sort of a deep dive into uh, what actually happened or how best we can uh, ascertain that. Anyway, that's next episode. Hope to be seeing you on social media between now and then. We're going out with song. This is Lily Frost from the greater Toronto area. The song is called Red Flag. It's from her 2017 EP, Rebound. It's uh, to an audience like us, it's a codependent anthem for warning signs for uh, addicts and cheats in your life. Anyway, news at rebelliondogspublishing.com. If you've got questions, comments, suggestions, ideas, just give us a call. Otherwise, we'll see you online. You take me out for coffee, it seems so innocent. My radar's on high like a bloodhound on a scent Are you a con man, a psycho, a narcissist, a creep? A player, an addict, a counterfeit, a leech Nobody is perfect, so what's your fatal flaw? If you have too much baggage, then don't come here at all Are you homeless, jobless, riderless in the night? Infected, dejected, a criminal or a snake? I'm watching and I'm waiting for the warnings to be seen I won't ignore the diatribe and silences between the red flags The red flags, the red flags Don't know what you're used to, I have raised the bar I lived and then I wised up, I smell you from afar All your slip-ups and mishaps, behavior seemed to creep up Like serpents and scoundrels and vampires and cheats I'm watching and I'm waiting for the warnings to be seen I won't ignore the diatribe and silences between The red flags, the red flags, the red flags The sound of your voice is
Radio.